From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm delighted you're joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up wherever you get your podcasts. This week, in the second part of our examination of the state of modern conservative thinking, we're going to take a deeper look at economics. Conservatives in the US and much of the West have taken as their starting point for economic thought the ideas and fruits of the intellectual revolution of the 1970s. Back then, in many countries, rampant inflation, stagnating economic growth, powerful labor unions and a bloated state underscored the failure of what had been called the post-war Keynesian consensus. The idea that governments could and should maintain demand at such a level to promote full employment. Into that economic turmoil came economists such as Milton Friedman, who, building on the work of writers like Friedrich Hayek and others, argued that the only way back to sustainable growth without inflation was to get tight control over the money supply, then shrink the state, cut taxes and regulation, promote free trade and global capital movement, the so-called neoliberal approach. Under Ronald Reagan in the US and Margaret Thatcher in Britain, this intellectual revolution found practical expression, and it seemed to work like a dream. The US and the UK led the West through a period of economic renewal with faster growth and indeed greater individual economic liberty. What's more, the philosophy seemed to have universal appeal. When the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, this neoliberal model gained widespread acceptance in economies looking to achieve growth and prosperity. But in the last decade or so, the ascendancy of this economic consensus as the basis of conservative economic thinking has come under serious challenge. Widening inequality has weakened national cohesion. Globalization seems to have produced too many losers in developed economies as jobs and capital have flowed to emerging markets. Big companies have gotten bigger and more powerful. And regular Americans have been harmed not only by relatively stagnant wage growth, but also by a broader loss of national morale. As communities are hollowed out by globalization and have become ripe with the modern social pathologies of crime, addiction and despair. All this is leading some conservatives to question the validity of these traditional Reaganite ideas. Is it time for radical change? A more populist program that rejects this market fundamentalism and puts workers first, reigning in big business and global capitalism with a more interventionist approach. Orrin Cass is one of the foremost thinkers and writers along these lines. After working as a management consultant, Cass was an advisor on Mitt Romney's presidential campaigns. In the process, he developed a critique of conventional conservative economic thought. In his influential 2018 book, the once and future worker, he argued that a labor market in which workers can support strong families and communities is the central determinant of long-term prosperity and should be the central focus of public policy. In 2020, he founded American Compass, a think tank promoting pro-family, pro-worker policies, which has been described by some as figuring out what the Republican Party's post-Trump economic consensus is going to be. And Oren Cash joins me now. Oren, thanks for joining Free Expression. Oh, thank you for having me. So we're looking at the uh, evolution of conservative thinking, or at least where it should go in terms of the economy. And you've been a significant contributor to that discussion. It does seem to many people that the kind of basic tenets of what might be called market fundamentalism, all those ideas, low taxes, small state, deregulation, free trade, globalization, all those things we kind of associate with the Reagan revolution and the extraordinary performance of the US economy after that, it does seem as though to many people as though maybe those don't have the relevance today that they used to. And in fact, actually, some of those things may be making our economic problems worse. What's your starting point as you consider as a conservative what we should be thinking about in terms of the kind of economic reforms we need to make right now? Well, I think the important place to start is to distinguish principles from policy. And I think that conservative principles, a focus on 
individual liberty, on uh, strong institutions in civil society, on family and community, on the importance of the nation. All of those remain the correct places to focus. And given the problems that we had in the 1970s, those translated into a series of policies that, as you just described, made up the Reagan revolution and ultimately won the Cold War. But we have a very different set of problems in the 2020s, if we think about the challenge posed by China's rise, the role it plays in the international economy, if we think about the shape of the domestic economy with declining investment in activity, hollowing out of our industrial sector, the rise of big tech, decades of stagnant wages for your typical worker, that's a very different set of issues. And the idea that just more tax cuts, deregulation, and free trade is going to solve those. It's not empirically true. It's not good economics. And there's nothing conservative about believing that just sort of dogmatically doing the same thing over and over again is going to achieve the results that we want. So I think the vital place to start is to apply our principles to today's problems and ask, what are the things we need to do ultimately to make capitalism work to embrace capitalism as the model that we want for our economy, but to recognize that that the market fundamentalism that says just free markets automatically work on their own, we just have to get out of the way, that's not true. We have to think very hard about what it takes for capitalism to work and make sure that public policy is supporting it. What's gone wrong? There are some conservatives who would say, you know, they acknowledge some of the problems we have, relatively slow growth, the kind of problems that many of our communities have, hollowing out and those kind of things. And they, they, some of them would say it's not due to kind of an excess of what we can call conservative economic thinking or market fundamentalism. And I realize there's a distinction between the two, but let's put the two of them together for now. It's actually due to an insufficiency of that. If you look at the tax burden over the last 15 or 20 years, It's kind of gone up and down, but it hasn't really significantly changed. If you look at some of the other sort of tenets of that Reagan economic thinking, they haven't necessarily been applied. What in your view, though, as you look at the various pathologies that the US economy faces now, and you've talked about some of them, the hollowing out phenomenon, the problem that many of our communities face, you know, the wider economic challenges of the economy, what in your view, what are the, the key problems and what has gone wrong in the last couple of decades? Well, I think the best way to understand it is is to go all the way back to Adam Smith and the invisible hand and recognize that the invisible hand isn't a magical concept. It doesn't say that by some sort of supernatural power, whatever people do to pursue profit is also going to serve the public interest. The basis of capitalism and what Adam Smith was describing is that When we have the right conditions in place, and by the way, what he specified was, you know, when people prefer domestic industry to foreign industry, when people focus on employing the most people and creating the most value, then their efforts to pursue profit will also support the public interest. And so I think what we see in the economy in recent decades is a lot of ways have opened up to pursue a lot of profit that are not necessarily good for workers, for communities, for the nation. And the two that I would put at the head of the list there are globalization and financialization. And by globalization, I mean, of course, the sort of opening up of the U.S. market into this global market, really with respect to the flow of goods, people, and capital, all of which have eliminated the constraint that the way to build a successful business and earn a lot of money is to employ American workers productively. Instead, in a lot of cases, the way to generate the most profit has been to offshore, to invest elsewhere, or to try to bring in cheaper labor from abroad. And we should not be surprised that those things do not (laughs) 
produce good outcomes. Yeah. And then financialization, I think, refers to the extraordinarily outsized role that Wall Street and financial markets have come to play in our economy. And of course, well-functioning financial markets are incredibly important. We need to bring capital to productive uses in the real economy. But that's not what financial markets in America do today. In fact, they take capital back out of the economy faster than they put it into productive investment. And so an enormous number of ways have been opened up to earn a tremendous amount of money, essentially trading piles of assets around in circles. And again, that's been very good for the people who do it. But we shouldn't be surprised that it hasn't led to prosperity for the nation as a whole. Let's take those one by one. So globalization first. I mean, again, I think it's a pretty widespread consensus that globalization has seen a significant number of losers, if you like, in particularly in the developed world. You don't need a PhD in economics to understand the basics of this. Obviously, when companies are free to invest overseas and employ overseas labor, you know, at a fraction of the cost of U.S. labor costs, then they do that. And we see this hollowing out phenomenon, which we've seen in many, many parts of the manufacturing sector, the economy here in the United States. And people understand that. I mean, I think it's fair to say also people do often focus on those negative aspects. They don't focus on the positive aspects of globalization, which is, you know, producing a stream of very, very low cost goods for people. And the way we've seen, obviously, not in the last few years, but the kind of the decline of inflation between 1990 and 2020 was a probably owed probably significant amount to that. Many people accept that globalization has created these problems in developed countries, especially like the United States. But what's the answer to that? Because we also know that kind of out and out protectionism, whether it's protecting infant industries, whether it's protecting whole broad sectors of the economy in order to protect jobs and to protect those companies. We also know that those have terrible costs too. I mean, we just saw, we got a little taste of that with Donald Trump, you know, and his imposition of tariffs, particularly on Chinese goods during his administration, which ends up costing consumers. It ends up costing Americans actually significant amounts. So while we may acknowledge the flaws of globalization and the problems it creates, what's your answer to how to address those which doesn't seem to just run into the usual problems that we associate with kind of protectionist economic policy. Well, I think the place to start is to understand that the problem with globalization as it has occurred isn't just the standard problem with trade that it creates winners and losers, right? Even a very well-functioning, effective system of free trade would create winners and losers. And that's something that economists concede. And there's a policy question of how to help the losers But we haven't really even had in a meaningful sense free trade. What we have had instead is this extraordinarily imbalanced relationship where huge amounts of productive activity that used to occur in the United States have gone abroad and that has not been offset by new demand for things produced in the United States that people abroad wanted to purchase, right? If we think about free trade, again, going back to the way Adam Smith or David Ricardo would have described it, the way the economic models expect it to work, trade is supposed to be just that, trade. We are supposed to receive things from other countries that they can make relatively more cheaply and send back things that we can make relatively more cheaply. And instead, the enormous trade imbalances that we have, I mean, more than a trillion dollars a year in our trade deficit now, what that represents is things being made abroad for Americans that are being sent here in return for American assets. We send back debt, we send back equities, we send back real estate, we send back claims on the future wealth of the country, which is both bad in the short run because there is no demand for actual production here. That's the hollowing out. 
And it's bad in the long run. We are handing over future claims on our wealth. And so I think it's really important to look at that and say, the problem we have here isn't just wanting to sort of prevent trade. Trade would be a very good thing if it were working well. What we need to do is prevent that imbalance and say that if you are serving American consumers, there's real value to America in having that done from within the U.S., Or if it is going to be things that's done from abroad, we really want to see that done in return for things that America is good at producing, that we can send in return so that we are still supporting investment, productivity growth, innovation, all of the things that actually drive our long-term prosperity in a way that just having more cheap stuff does not. The cheap stuff is fine in the short run, but it puts us on a much worse trajectory for the long term. And so what that means in terms of policy is, I think, a real focus on returning to balance. And in that respect, the idea of what folks say disparagingly is protectionism is actually a matter of saying, no, we we actually care what is made here. And it is fashionable to say that protectionism has a terrible track record, but that's not actually true. And just to sort of put a finer point in that with two examples, First of all, the entire history of American economic development was one of heavy protectionism. The entire, going all the way back to Alexander Hamilton, the entire American system of the 1800s, really all the way up through World War II, America probably had the highest tariffs and protectionist barriers for domestic industry of any country. That is how America became the continent striding industrial colossus an arsenal of democracy. So in that respect, I think we should be a bit skeptical of the idea that that is somehow incompatible with economic growth and prosperity. And, you know, a more recent example that I think is really helpful in thinking about what we want to see is actually from Ronald Reagan. And it's looking at how the Reagan administration responded to the Japanese auto industry and the rate at which it was overtaking the American auto industry in the early 80s. And what the U.S. did was it just negotiated just an absolute quota with the Japanese. They just capped the number of Japanese autos that could be sent into the U.S. Now, did that raise the price of Japanese cars for American consumers in the short run? Yeah, of course it did. But it also led all of the major Japanese automakers to relocate production to America. And first they relocated their assembly facilities, then entire supply chains. Now they've moved research and development here. It's led to hundreds of billions of dollars of capital investment, hundreds of thousands of good jobs in the American South. And in recent decades, in fact, the Toyota Camry has had more American content than any car sold from Detroit. And so in the long run, the consequence of that was not more expensive cars for American consumers. It was an extraordinary new industry in the U.S. with American workers serving the market and doing it just as competitively as it could be done from elsewhere. And so, you know, we can jump into kind of specific policy prescriptions, but I think that's sort of the picture to have in mind is that actually channeling investment into the domestic economy is actually exactly what we need. How would you do that? Is that a combination of tax incentives? Again, the traditional approach to promoting domestic manufacturing, say particularly, but sort of domestic activity is a combination of support for domestic industries. That could be in the form of tax breaks. It could be in the form of subsidies. By the way, we've just seen that to some extent with the America First policies. We've just seen that, by the way, with the Biden administration's so-called Inflation Reduction Act and the, all the 
the measures for American-made green energy uh, products that that has. So is that what you'd favor, that plus maybe tariffs in particular cases to limit or to, you know, to raise the cost, obviously, of imports and therefore to limit the access to the U.S. market? Is it that combination of measures you'd favor or is there something more specific you're thinking about? I think those are both good examples. There's obviously the sort of the carrots and the sticks, so to speak. I think on one side, we absolutely need to make it more attractive to do the domestic investment. And in some cases, that is tax policy. I think the investment tax provisions of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act are really the good element of it that does need to be made permanent. But I think we need to do a lot more than that in terms of actually supporting domestic investment. For instance, I think we need some sort of domestic development bank that brings in large amounts of private capital that is essentially attracted through subsidy and deployed toward productive domestic investment. Something we do a lot of work on is the idea of what's called pre-competitive partnership, which is actually encouraging industry to get together and invest in doing the kind of upstream innovation that leads to a lot of successful domestic production in the long run. I mean, there are a lot of good examples of this happening in the past. It was vital to the U.S. success in semiconductors previously. And that's the sort of thing, again, where I think public funding, basically matching private funding, ensures that the private sector is defining where this is going to be most valuable, but we're also supporting it. But I also think it's very important to have the sticks and and what I would call the constraints. You know, I think local content requirements are a very powerful tool to say, look, things sold in America in many cases, have to be made in America or with a significant share of American-made content. And that creates the automatic demand. It leaves it to the market to decide how to fill that demand. It ensures that that demand will be there. Again, I think the problem that some conservatives have with these ideas is that they don't sound very conservative because it does sound in one form or another like the government making decisions as to government picking winners, the government making decisions as to which industries, which sectors are going to need, in its view, or receive benefits. And the beauty of the market is we know from throughout history, particularly the history of the last 200 years, when kind of market capitalism has really been allowed to flourish, that the market does that much better than government can. And that applies both domestically, but also globally. And the idea that of the government intervening and sort of bending the invisible hand or directing the invisible hand in some way, A, isn't very conservative in terms of its principle, and B, generally speaking, historically doesn't work very well. I think that really misunderstands the entire concept of free markets in two respects. The first is that what you've just suggested is this idea that free trade and free markets are synonymous. And the way that we show our commitment to free markets is by opening the market up globally. But if that global opening is going to be like to a country like China, which is a billion plus person authoritarian, communist, state-controlled economy, that's not free market. (laughs) It's not free market to say, hey, you can produce things either in the United States or in China, and the Chinese Communist Party is going to decide, therefore, the conditions and incentives and trade-offs under which you decide where to deploy your capital. In fact, free trade and free markets in that context are in direct opposition to each other. And so it seems to me that if one is actually committed to free markets and all of the things you just described about how free markets work well, then insulating our market from the Chinese one and its distortions is incredibly important. The fact that things that used to be made in America are now made in China, particularly when you're talking about sophisticated, advanced technology products, there is no free market associated with that 
at all. That is a function of communist economic policy and, you know, foreign adversary. I'm not sure why we would acknowledge that as a market force or somehow expect that following it is going to be good for America. So I would very much reject the idea that globalization or trade in that respect is consistent with market principles. And then secondly, when it comes to the question of, as you just described, not wanting to pick winners, I think it's very important to note that none of the things I just described in the kinds of policy choices we might want to make picks winners in the sense of picking particular companies, let's say, or technologies and saying, yes, government bureaucrats are going to identify those as successful ones. What it does do is say, actually, we believe that manufacturing is important, that whether or not we make anything matters. And that is a place where market fundamentalism went in a different direction. And we've had a lot of economists saying, in fact, making things does not matter because at the end of the day, all we are trying to do is maximize our consumption. And if China will make things more cheaply for us, then that's terrific. But again, to exactly the way you framed it, the question of what is conservative and what is not, I cannot imagine any set of conservative principles that would embrace that mindset and say productive capacity, the actual ability to make things in this country we should not care about because all that matters is consumption. A conservative notion of markets and effective market economy and ultimately what the market is for, what we see as the common good and the ends that we are pursuing has to be much, much richer than just this idea that cheap consumption is all that we want. And so I think it's actually core to a notion of conservative economics and what we are working on at American Compass to say the starting point has to be defining what the market actually is for, that a libertarian mindset that says, well, whatever free trade with China generates, that's <laughs> that must be great. That's a terrible way of thinking about things. It's not conservative at all. We have to define the common good as we understand it, which is about an economy that actually creates good jobs, that's going to allow people to support their families, that's going to support strong and stable communities, that's ultimately going to support the health of the nation. And it is absolutely government's role to put in place the kinds of constraints and institutions that are going to channel investment in those directions, because the invisible hand does not generate prosperity if you just take all forms of profit to be equal. We have to be willing to say, actually, there are some things that deliver a lot of profit that aren't especially valuable, and there are others that are. And capitalism is not going to work unless policymakers are willing to stand up and have a point of view on that. We're going to take a break there, but when we come back, I'll have more with Oren Cass on the future of conservative economic thinking. Stay with us. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with Oren Cass, founder of American Compass, and we're talking about evolution of conservative thinking about economic policy in the Trump era. Let's talk about the second of your phenomena that, in your view, have caused much of the problems that we have today. And that's, we talked about globalization. Now, you also mentioned financialization. And again, a lot of people would, I think, sympathize with that view. Again, the tricky thing, though, is, as with globalization, is the sort of baby in the bathwater problem, right? Which is, on the one hand, the distortions, maybe, that an enormous financial sector works on the U.S. economy. But of course, it's also true that the fact that the U.S. has the deepest and most liquid capital markets probably of any country in the world has been an enormous benefit for it. Compare the United States and Europe, which is obviously the, the best example of the two 
and the largest broadly free market economic zones in the world. If you look at startups, if you look at innovation, if you look at the ability of entrepreneurs to realize their, their goals, their aims, a lot of people put that down to these extraordinarily deep and liquid financial markets that the United States has. And so while it may create problems, how are you going to rein in some of the excesses of financialization, as you call it, without doing damage to that great benefit that the U.S. economy has of this extraordinary access to capital that American businesses have? Well, I guess I would challenge the premise there to some extent that, first of all, the depth or liquidity of the capital markets is especially correlated with the type of financialization that we've seen, or for that matter, that the financial markets as they are operating today are at all important to that innovation and entrepreneurial spirit that you're describing. It seems to me that if we look at what those important sources of capital are for sort of genuine innovation, to some extent, we might say they come from the venture capital sector. Venture capital is a tiny, tiny fraction (laughs) of what goes on in our financial markets. And even if I were to stipulate that venture capital is extraordinarily productive and effective in the way it's operating today, I would still say that that has almost nothing to do of most of what goes on on Wall Street. There's private equity too. There are the many myriad financial institutions. Don't disagree that, that a lot of what goes on in the financial sector <laughs> represents the kind of development and exploitation of economic rent. Again, I'm, I'm trying to understand what it is, what's gone wrong, as it were, with the scale of the financial sector. I mean, is it is it that? Is it the fact that there is just enormous amounts of rent seeking that goes on and that that should somehow be reined in? What is the problem with financialization? What would you do about it? Well, I think the fundamental problem is the way our financial markets operate today is to extract capital out of the real economy rather than put capital into the real economy. And the key here that I always emphasize is what we mean by the word investment, right? We casually use the term investment to mean buying an asset. Right. If I go in and buy shares in stock, I say I've invested. If a private equity firm buys a company, we say it's invested. It's important to recognize that that is not investment. (laughs) That is trading one pile of assets, cash, for a different pile of assets, pieces of paper that say you own something. The investment only occurs if the capital actually goes into the company and is then deployed to buy things, (laughs) to cause things to happen in the real economy that expand our productive capacity, our knowledge, our technology, and so forth. And so whether you're thinking about that in terms of how our corporations behave and the extent to which they now pursue buybacks and returning capital to shareholders rather than investing it, or you're looking at from the financial market side, the way that private equity firms, hedge funds, and so forth behave, which really rewards transactions that have nothing to do with getting capital to productive uses. I think we have to, first of all, be willing to point that out and say that is not value creating, right? You don't think they act as a strong discipline on economic actors, things that you say have nothing to do with creating economic value, don't think the, you know, for example, the the sort of the vigilance of whether it's, you know, activist hedge fund investors or the discipline exercised by 
America's very, very mobile mass of capital, which can, as we've seen, can create real problems for companies. You don't think that the scale of that and the mobility and the speed of that acts as a valuable discipline on on American business? Well, I love your choice of the word discipline, right? Because when (laughs) what you mean by discipline is ensuring that those corporations are maximizing profit and shareholder return to the greatest extent possible. Isn't that the basis of of a property owning democracy that actually that in the end is what, you know, if you have property and if it's a property owner and part of your property is the ownership of a company, you want to maximize the returns, don't you? Isn't that central to the way capitalism works? I don't doubt that that is what they are doing through their discipline, but we're right back to the question of the invisible hand and what we're trying to accomplish. If efforts to maximize profit produce things in the public interest, then that would be terrific. And you could imagine a world in which what discipline by financial markets meant was going to large corporations and saying, why aren't you investing much more heavily in developing the next wave of technology, improving the productivity of your workforce, in expanding the industrial commons in this country? And one might argue that there were times in American history when that is what companies did, but that is not what discipline in financial markets means today. What discipline in financial markets means today is why haven't you done more to cut costs? Why haven't you done more to hold down wage growth? Why haven't you offshored more quickly? And if that is what discipline means, and that generates a lot of profit, there is no reason to expect that to actually accrue to the nation's benefit. (laughs) That's just not what economic theory says. And again, you know, let's take share buybacks as a very concrete example. There is this argument that, well, a share buyback is just an example of a company saying, we don't have anything better to do with the money. We are going to return it to some other more productive form of investment. Let's notice the two problems with that. First of all, the entire premise of capitalism is if it's working well, is that companies do have useful things (laughs) to do with the money. We expect our corporate sector to be developing productive opportunities for investment. If corporations are buying back more than a trillion dollars a year of their own shares, saying we can think of nothing better to do with this than buy our own stock, there is something very seriously wrong on that side. Now, if that trillion dollars of buybacks then did cycle back around to other companies that had productive investments to make, Maybe it would work out, but there's no evidence that that's happening. In fact, we see domestic investment as a share of GDP in long-term secular decline. In fact, what we see is buybacks and dividends and debt repayment pushing capital back into financial markets much more quickly than it actually gets reinvested into the real economy. And in fact, we see it to the point where companies are buying shares back so quickly that roughly half of them aren't even maintaining their own capital base. <laughs> they're, they're not even making capital expenditures sufficient to offset depreciation, even as they make massive share buybacks. And so if that's what's going on, then the discipline that you describe is not, in fact, one that is going to promote economic growth, that's going to promote wage growth, that's going to create better jobs, or that's going to accrue to the good of the nation. And so I haven't answered your question yet about what policies we might choose. We can jump into that. But I think this is an incredibly important discussion to have because it goes to exactly the market fundamentalism that, for one thing, is not conservative at all. And for another, has so badly corrupted our sense of what markets are for 
and how to understand whether capitalism is working or not. Forgive me if I'm misunderstanding what you're saying, but it's interesting that if you like, in sort of impugning this approach of maximizing profit, which is what, as you say, the kind of disciplines of the American financial markets do, and especially those sort of quarterly public companies having to meet their quarterly expectations, that doing that, it sounds as though in impugning that, to some extent you're aligning with some of these interesting intellectual currents, which one doesn't really associate particularly with conservatism, people who argue that actually profit should not be the, the famous Milton Friedman argument that shareholder return to shareholder value should be the only really defining objective of business. You seem to be sort of aligning a little bit with whether it's people, you know, the so-called stakeholder approach or even the ESG approach, that there are different stakeholders and shareholders should only be understood as one of them and that part of the way in which maybe the U.S., business needs to be reformed, or the US economy needs to be reformed, is to recognize that and actually to elevate the interests of those other stakeholders. Am I unfairly bracketing you with that crowd? I mean, or are you arguing something different? I think that's somewhat unfair. I think there's a fascinating discussion to be had about that stakeholder point, And I don't approve of Milton Friedman's <laughs> approach to it at all. I, I don't think it's an effective description of how the economy does work, let alone how it should work. But for purposes of this discussion, I don't think we even have to get into that yet, because even to the extent that we assume that the goal is to maximize profit, and I think at the end of the day, with various caveats, that is what companies are going to do. That is what incentives are aligned to do. And we shouldn't pretend that we can replace that with something else. But this brings us back to exactly to the place where I started, which is to say, for capitalism to work, the thing to do is not change that system of people pursuing profit. It's to make sure that we have a system where the things that are going to generate the most profit are things that actually accrue to the public interest. And so that's where, when we talk about this idea of discipline, it would be a very good thing to have shareholders or others disciplining management if by discipline we meant encourage them to pursue profit because we thought that pursuing profit was going to produce productive behaviors. The question is, how do we get that equation back in place? And so some of that, and this is what we talked about in the globalization context, is, for instance, saying, how do we make sure it is not more profitable to offshore than to invest domestically? Now, you could say that's picking winners. And, and we've discussed, I, I don't think that's picking winners at all. I think that's recognizing that that is a core prerequisite for capitalism to work, which Adam Smith literally discusses in the paragraph where he describes the invisible hand. So we should be entirely comfortable recognizing that that is a condition that we need to return to. And so partly is saying, what are the things that we need to do to make those things that are productive relatively more profitable so that that is what companies do? That is what shareholders are pushing companies to do. And then the other side of it, and this goes directly to the financialization, is how do we take things that are clearly not productive and have the confidence to say, just because that generated a lot of profit for you does not mean it was productive. And therefore, by the way, maybe it's something we want to discourage. And so just to give one very concrete example, we should have a financial transaction tax that discourages high-frequency trading. We should be willing to say hedge funds who generate profit by trying to locate themselves closer to the stock exchange so that they can front-run on other market activity by a few extra milliseconds, that is not productive activity. That does not create value. And among other things, it draws an enormous amount of talent, to say nothing of capital, away from productive uses. 
And we have to be willing to say that. And conservatives have to be especially willing to say there are substantive goods out there in the world that markets are for and that we are seeking to achieve. And there are things happening in our markets that are clearly corrosive to that. And if we want capitalism to work, which we absolutely should, we have to be willing to point those things out. And we have to be willing to recognize that public policy has always played a vital role in the American tradition, and it will always have to play a vital role in constraining and channeling capital and investment and an activity towards productive ends. And the market fundamentalism that said, actually, we don't have to do that. Whatever the market generates is going to be terrific. Sure as heck isn't conservative, and it sure as heck isn't working for America. I want to locate this in the politics of the day and get your sense of how you think politics are evolving. Because I, look, I don't, whatever we, we can argue about all of these issues, but I don't think one can argue that there is a widespread disillusionment in the country with so much of the kind of economic policy consensus that has held almost kind of on a bipartisan basis for the last 20 or 30 years. I don't think anyone can deny that. And I'm wondering how you see the Trump phenomenon, the rise of populism, your ideas and the ideas that you're developing and you and, and other smart people like you are developing, how they gain traction politically and whether or not you see the Trump campaign and the Trump presidency having articulated essentially many of these kind of ideas and how you see the Republican Party going in particular. I know you've got people like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley who've kind of aligned themselves with many of the kind of things you're saying. How does this unfold politically so that the kind of ideas you're talking about are able to start being implemented? I think the important way to understand Trump and to see the break that he represents is that he was talking about a different set of problems, that at the end of the day, a lot of politics and ultimately political economy is about defining what it is we aspire to and where we're falling short. And that consensus, which I think you're right, was entirely bipartisan for several decades, did focus on this idea of consumer welfare above all, always. That the goal of the economy, the goal of our politics was to maximize consumption. This is the idea of the so-called economic pie, right? We're going to fight about how best to grow the pie. We're going to fight about how to divide the pie. But at the end of the day, the goal is just to have as much pie as possible. You know, who doesn't like pie? And I think a way to understand Trump politically and ideologically is that what he was saying is that rightly, this is not working. People do, in fact, have more pie than ever, and they are not happy because it matters, for instance, who gets to bake the pie. People want to be productive contributors. They want to, as workers, be able to support their families. They want to be in stable and thriving communities. And ultimately, at the level of the nation, we need to be in a position to assert and defend our interests. And if all we do is measure how much we're consuming and how big our TVs are, we aren't actually achieving those things. And so I think as sort of someone who was talking about a very different set of problems, recognizing the way that this consensus had succeeded on its own terms, right, <laughs> material consumption way up, and yet Americans were rightly incredibly frustrated with a real loss in middle-class security, in job quality, and so forth. That was exactly the thing that needed to be emphasized. And I think what you see in a, a lot of the political figures who are stepping forward, like you said, Senator Rubio, Senator Hawley, Senator Vance, on the right of center are people who are actually going back to those conservative principles we've been talking about and recognizing that market fundamentalism and this dogmatic free market mindset that just says 
tax cuts, deregulation, free trade. That's all we need to talk about. It was certainly not succeeding politically, and it wasn't succeeding substantively. And so I think the work that is happening now, and it's very promising because the politics and the economics of it line up, is that you see an increasing shift in working class voters, in people who are most concerned about these basic economic questions of their well-being, not just as consumers, but as producers, are moving away from a progressivism that really doesn't care much about any of that and toward a conservatism that has something to say about it. And you have these conservative leaders who want to talk about it and want to think about what set of policies are going to be necessary to actually do something about it. And the sad story would be that you could see that not working, of course, but the positive and hopeful one is that I think you see a lot of effort, and this is what we do at American Compass, focused on developing an agenda that actually does rebuild American capitalism to work for the American people. And if we can do that, I think there's an incredibly powerful, durable governing majority of Americans who want to see that as well. Lauren Cass, founder of American Compass, as you say, and I think it's fair to say an iconoclastic but influential conservative economic thinker. Thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Oh, this was so much fun. Thank you. Well, that's it for Free Expression this week. Thanks for joining me. Please tune in again next week when I'll have another deep look at a major issue shaping the way we live. Till then, thank you and goodbye.